0: Before I introduce the next guest on the business of intuition, let me give you three don'ts and three do's. Number one, if you're playing small, don't. Number two, if you're trying to be all things to all people, don't. Number three, if you're trying to convince people of your point of view, don't. Today we are in 2022, January, and it occurred to me as I was getting ready for this podcast that we are now in our 30th year in business. We started off in 1992. I had just gotten my certification as a coach, and back then it was called Newland Coaching. Most of my clients were small entrepreneurial business owners, and it was all on that one-on-one relationship. Later, started to pick up some new skills, new people to work with, and we called ourselves back then Quantum Leap Unlimited, and then when we started getting into strategic planning and large organizational change, and we had more people to partner with, we renamed our company Mission Facilitators International, which it has been for quite some time. The very first workshop I do remember back in 1992 I ever conducted was called Discover Your Life's Purpose. It was a small little thing, but it caught a lot of attention And my next guest on the Business of Intuition has indeed found out what his life purpose is. He did so in a way, or did find this purpose in a rather unusual process, which we will have him explain to you in a minute. So now the three do's. If you're playing small, don't, but start thinking big. Go beyond your mindset get into something that has to do with your legacy. Number two, if you're trying to be all things to all people, specialize, narrow your focus, really do good work on a niche. And number three, if you're trying to convince people of your point of view, rather start asking questions and consult, add more value than what they expect. My next guest on the business of intuition is a master of all three. He's built his life around legacy building, being a specialist, and also a consultant. Mr. Stephen Fretzen has a really successful podcast. He is focused specifically in the area of the law world. However, his principles and his tactics are timeless for anybody who is a deep dive subject matter expert who wants to be able to get better at their sales, the relationship building, and creating a process for going from where they are now to something big and something sustainable. He's driven, he's focused, and he's passionate about helping attorneys to reach their full potential. Steve Fretzen is regarded as the premier coach, skill trainer, and keynote speaker on business development for attorneys. With over 17 years, Steve has devoted his career to helping lawyers master the art of business development to achieve their business goals and the peace of mind that comes with developing a successful law practice. In addition to writing three, actually now four books on legal marketing and business development, Steve has a highly rated podcast called Be That Lawyer and has been featured in the Chicago Tribune entrepreneur.com. He's also appeared on NBC News, WGN Radio, and has written articles for attorney at the law magazine, the National Law Review, and the American Bar Association. Mr. Steve Fretzen on the business of intuition. Steve, thanks very much for being on the business of intuition. I want to tee you up a little bit because I know that, you know, the pandemic right now, we could almost say there's another one that's going on, which is one around fear. And the fear that people are, are going through is, is substantial. And I think that, you know, if we, if we were to ask people in general, like, what's your biggest fear? You know, sometimes people say, aside from the pandemic, you know, public speaking or whatever the case may be, but I, I'm sure on the list at some point would be falling out of the sky. Yeah. And so I have heard the story that you were actually in a plane that crashed. That is true. But could you tell us the story about that? You've probably been through this a thousand times, but would you just kind of like tell us a little bit what led up to it? But more importantly, what did you learn from it? And then ultimately, why focus on lawyers?
1: Yeah, and I wish so, they were 100% the connected. They're a little disjointed, but, I, but okay, I'll, I'll, I promise you I promise you I'll get there eventually. Okay. And the short version is is fine. The long version has to happen over a beer because... The long version is very intense and scary and horrifying and all that. The short version that I can share with you, which I won't break down into a puddle, um, (laughs) is I was very close friends with a pilot and flight instructor who invited everybody except me to go from Chicago to Eagle River, Wisconsin, which is about an eight to 10 hour drive. And we were going to fly it. And this guy, I'd been up with him once or twice, and he was clearly an expert. And so slowly but surely, the people that he had invited started to drop out. I can't go for this reason. I can't go for that reason. So not only did he end up inviting me, but he ended up inviting me and my girlfriend who had just moved in with me within maybe a month. And so we flew up to Eagle River, Wisconsin. We had probably two of the best days I've ever had in the sense of romance, in the sense of, of jet skiing, water skiing, just having a blast. And we ended up kind of rushing out of there at night because for a number of reasons, we had planned on it. But my my girlfriend had to get back to work. She had to cover a shift or something. So we flew out of there and we get pretty far into our trip and we start hearing the engine start to sputter. And if you know that sound, you never forget it because it's not a sound that you ever want to hear, especially when you're in the plane. If you hear it on, in a movie, that's one thing. But to be in the plane and hear that noise, it's your heart just sinks right into your stomach, okay? So the pilot says, don't worry. You know, I just got to flip tanks. He flips tanks. We get, because the, the, I don't know if you know this, but in small airplanes, they carry the fuel in the, in the wings, okay? Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you run out of fuel in one tank, you just switch to another tank and bup, 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 bup and you're right back. Well, sure yeah. enough, that happened. So we go another 10 minutes. Everything's going great. We're all kind of like relieved and kind of laughing, kind of like, oh my God, that was a scary noise. I don't want to hear that again. Well, guess what? It came back. Now it starts sputtering again, and we all are giving each other now a different look because when it happens the first time, it's shock; the second time, it's dread, and that's the feeling we had. And we're about five thousand feet up. It's pitch black. It's night, and it starts raining. Mm. Like, talk about the most ominous situation you can be in, and you're in absolutely zero control. Like, my wife makes totally like makes these noises when I'm driving because she like thinks I'm this like race car driver. I'm not. I drive fine. In fact, I joke that I used to be a bus driver and she hates when I say that, but (laughs) because I'm like that good of a driver, I was a bus driver. But anyway, the long and the short is it's, it was just a little bit of panic. And I, I'm, I don't know if it's my, my role in life or whatever, to sort of be the manager of expectations and the manager of like people's emotions. But I was trying to just keep everybody calm, my girlfriend and the other people in the plane. And the pilot was scrambling. He's putting a map out. He's trying to like figure out like where we're going to land. There's no nope. I mean, it's pitch blackout. Well, he finds a street in a rural suburban city near Chicago and he decides to go for it. So he banks a huge turn. I think he actually made it through some power lines or something crazy. And he gets down and we get near the ground. And I'm like, oh my God, we're going to make it. Oh my God, we're going to make it. He overshoots the landing. I I'm looking out the window as the plane gets ripped off the side of the airplane and bam, I'm unconscious. So what had actually happened was the plane flipped upside down, clipped the wing on the ground, flipped upside down, slammed into a bunch of cars and a garage in a house loaded with people. By the way, Dean, I mean, the house was loaded with people. They were having a party. Okay. Well, the party ended. So sort of a good news, bad news situation. The bad news is our plane crashed. The good news is no one in the house got hurt and there was no explosion. Well, why wasn't there an explosion? Well, we had run out of gas, which should never happen in an airplane. And the pilot was convinced that it, it. Later on, and this was a huge court case. The pilot was convinced that it was it was not pilot error; that it was issues with uh, instruments. But the reality is, they found very little gas in the plane, which means we ran out of gas. Mm-hmm. So long and the short is, I ended up waking up basically like a pretzel. I mean, my left leg was broken and dislocated, as was my right arm dislocated above my body. My ribs were broken. My arm was shattered. I had a broken, a torn meniscus and that wasn't the worst part. I woke up in, in obviously in shock and in in horrible pain, the plane had been ripped in half. My girlfriend who had just moved in with me was unconscious and her ankle was right by me. And I was just tapping her ankle, calling her name, trying to like, wake up, wake up, wake up. They pulled me out of the plane. I'm screaming her name. Of course, my left arm and left leg are dislocated and broken from my body. So moving someone like that isn't great. So that was by far the most excruciating pain I've ever had in my life. And they basically like took me away and I didn't know what happened to my girlfriend. And eventually I found out that they had choppered her to a hospital uh, and she had a traumatic brain injury, which if you uh-huh. know about traumatic brain injuries, they're very, very tough to come back from. You can recover yeah. from my injuries, traumatic brain injuries. The brain just doesn't work the same. and. There's a long story after the fact of what you know happened with me and her, but the long and the short is is that that's that's essentially what I lived through. Transition to you know weeks later, I'm in a wheelchair with no use of my arms, and I had to try to like I had a lot of time to think and a lot of time to reflect on my life, what went what right, what went wrong, and basically how fragile things are. I mean, whether it's COVID, cancer, a plane crash, a car crash, doesn't matter. Slipping on ice, you got one shot at this thing, Dean. Mm-hmm. And I never really realized that until that point that you 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 don't get second chances like I was given, and I'm mm-hmm. gonna make the best of it. And so I made some very tough life and business decisions of how I was gonna spend my life and what I was gonna do. And you know things have been, I mean, so much better since, obviously. But uh, you know I had a lot of growing up to do. This was happened happened in my 20s. I'm mm-hmm. uh, in my early 50s now, so the last you know basically half of my life has been growing and living with this experience. And, and what I took away from it was, you know, make every day count, hmm. you know, whether that's personally with your loved ones, whether it's with your business and, and making sure you don't just spin your wheels that you, you have a direction and you're going towards it and experiencing life. That's really what it's all about.
0: So great. And thank you for that story. I know that's tough to tell. I'm just very moved by it. Um, it's amazing. You know, I was um, with some friends over the weekend and, was struck by the things that people were complaining about, and I, my wife and I later kind of debriefed on it. We went, "This is such small stuff." Yeah, you know, are we really are we really here to make a difference? Are we here to argue a- around something as small as our house cleaner or whatever small little gnat of an issue that we're dealing with? And you just bring to light even more that, you know, we only have one chance at this life, and we have to play big, and you. You know, had this wonderful experience in that you got to really get that. Not that yeah. I would wish this on anybody. No,
1: no, but it's but it is it's, it's one of those it, what, things you just you can't you can't escape if uh, if it happens to you, it happens to you, and then it's it's what you decide to do after.
0: It's almost like you got the second chance now. Don't go blow it. You know, it's like that yeah. end of Saving Private Ryan. You know, if you remember the end scene when the Tom Hanks character goes to the Matt Damon and he says, you know, I forget what it was, but you know, earn it was the word that he said before he yeah. passed away. Like we did all of this. Now you have a chance to go and and do something with it. Of course, that movie was so profound, not just because of the individual relationship that they had, but because we as a society were basically represented by the private Ryan person, you know, we have to earn it. We, you know, so such a great message. So a little bit more tactical you know you you're a coach for lawyers why did you choose lawyers i mean there's so many different niches there's yeah. there's, there's physicians there's accountants there's it people who might have a similar personality but why lawyers
1: yeah. So first of all, I'll start off by saying my father's a lawyer. And so I think if anything, it pushed me away from being a lawyer or wanting to be around lawyers because my father, who I love dearly, is a, is a difficult guy sometimes. And mm. when I was a teenager, I was put on the cross on a regular basis about just about everything I wasn't doing right. So mm. um, however, he you know, instilled in me the importance of of having your own business and taking control of your career and not working for someone else. And I think that played a role in it what ended up happening, I started my own coaching business back in 2004, really focused in working with entrepreneurs. What I had identified as a, in a lifetime of, of, of being in sales was that I didn't like the feeling I, I had when I had to sell somebody something. When mm-hmm. I had to convince someone to, to do what I wanted or buy a service or a product that I was selling, that's not really a good feeling. And by the way, people don't like to be sold to, including me. When I get sold financial services or accounting or any type of a house, it doesn't feel good. So my whole theme of going into business was sales-free selling, which is the name of my first book. How do we perform and grow business without ever having to sell or feel salesy? And here's the connection between that and lawyers. When the recession hit in 2008, I had never really even talked to a lawyer about working with a lawyer. I'd mainly focused on entrepreneurs and small businesses. And a lawyer came to me and said, hey, things are slow. They've never been like this before. And I've heard good things about you and what you do for others. You know, can we talk? I said, well, sure. And the same problems that that other people are having, this lawyer was having. And here's the kick, Here's the kicker of the whole thing. Lawyers never learn anything about business development or growing a law practice in law school. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, never learn a thing about it, even when they work at a law firm or especially in-house, like working at a company. So right. here, here's a gap in, in, in an entire industry that produces some of the smartest people in the world that have no clue how to do something that determines whether they get business or not, whether they can feed their family or not. Right. Well, that's something interesting. So one lawyer turned into two, two turned into three, then a law firm, then five, then 10. Within a few years, it was about 80% of my total business. And I here I am teaching them how to specialize, but I hadn't pulled the trigger myself, Dean. So- <laughs> I finally said, look, I, I have an opportunity to help an industry. I have an opportunity to make a difference, maybe not to everybody, but to, but in a particular industry that I feel passionate about, my father field still feels passionate about He's 87 living down in Florida, but we still have these great conversations about what it was like to practice law in the good old days and what it's like now. And it's a very different game. And so, so I have, yeah, I have, yeah. So, so that's, that's how I got into it. And it's been just it. an absolute pleasure.
0: That's great. That's you remind me of a an example I had when I was earlier in my career was we got a, a pretty good sales gig with Grant Thornton up in Seattle. Sure, and, you know, super, stupid smart individuals who just didn't know about selling and or networking. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do often is in healthcare. And these people often are with physician run organizations, but they don't know about leadership. They don't know about networking. There's they're very deep dive in their, their specialty, but they don't know these other aspects of it. So I guess my, my question to you is, what are the qualities that attract one to be a lawyer that also don't make them necessarily a great salesperson?
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of answers to that question, but I'll give you the, the most general is that you know, lawyers love to solve problems. They love to fix things. They love to get creative around language. And that's all fine and dandy. But what that means is that when someone says they have a legal problem, a lawyer is going to want to jump in and sell, a lawyer is going to want to jump in and and talk and solve. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that what they're doing is essentially is is doing what's called free consulting. They're Mm -hmm. just giving away the farm. And what they're not doing is what I teach, which is how do we... Ask questions. How do we listen? How do we let them feel understood? How do we take in more information than we ever would have gotten before, so that we understand that there's a fit, and we understand that there's a solution that we can talk about? But maybe it's after an engagement letter is signed. And mm-hmm. so I think that's really what what lawyers just—they're not many of them are, are very analytical people. They're just not built. And by the way, even the ones that are outgoing and that have the personality for sales they still talk too much. So it's, it's more universal now that I'm teaching people that are outrageous and people that are highly introverted to do the same things, which is zip their lip, ask better questions, be a better listener and, and, and let the person come to you. Let them say, how do we get started together? When can, you know, can you help me with this? Hmm. Versus having to talk about how great your firm is or talk about your great trial experience. In most cases, the lawyers I work with, they never have to really talk about any of that the client wants to work with them because of the way they manage the meeting, the questions they asked and how they felt about that lawyer.
0: So this is universal. I don't think this is just a characteristic that is only for lawyers per se. You know, even a person may be listening to this podcast and say, well, this doesn't really apply, but we're all involved in some sort of selling every time we have an idea that we want to engage another person in. And so that could be a mid-level manager that could be Husband and wife, you know, it could be any sort of exchange. So, what is the, you mentioned the word salesy, you know, and that there, there's a reticence to being sales like, you know, almost like sales has this stain on its reputation, you know, in a way, what you're trying to do is change that. But what is that salesy characteristic that we feel unauthentic to engage in? So that we sort of, I can sort of identify that. And obviously that's not what you're trying to do, but I think it's important to sort of call out what is it that people find so disconcerting about being salesy?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've all been sold to. I mean, we all walk into dealerships to buy a car and and it's just the worst experience. And Hmm. I bought a Tesla recently and it was the best experience. Well, why? Because there was no one there to sell me anything. I just did everything online, went in and picked up my car and signed it to two things. Mm. financing everything was done. I helped my brother get a car. We went in and it was the salesman selling us, it was the manager selling us, it was the finance guy selling us. Mm. It was just pushing us and pushing us and pushing us to get something done whether we wanted it to be done or not. And I know that that's not what most sales professionals do anymore cuz if they do they're not in business. They're going to be they're going to be, you know, <laughs> chased away from their industry because that's just not acceptable anymore. Right. But the problem is, is that that the way people are are selling today, it may not make anybody feel super bad. But what it does is, it's it's very time intensive to meet with someone, pitch them what you do, follow up. They ghost you, follow up more. Eventually, get them back. They have objections. You try to solve the objections, and and it ends up you end up spending a lot of time trying to lock up a piece of business that probably should be done in a meet, in one meeting. Well, why is that? Because there's so many inefficiencies with the way people are still currently selling services or products, right? And it's just pushing and trying to keep things moving along versus isolating that, that there's a fit and why, and that we should probably move forward or we should just call it a day. And we can call it a day and stay friends, Dean. But at the end of, at the end of it, what we're trying to do is be efficient with our time and understand if there's a good fit.
0: So this, I get it, and I, I'm wondering if you could address this from a, a from sort of a, a larger perspective. So I'm a lawyer, or let's say I'm an IT person, and I'm out having to sell my wares, or whatever that particular thing is. It's one thing to say, Steve, man, I get it. You know, this would be a breath of fresh air. On the other hand, I have metrics, and I have quotas, and I have billable hours, and I have you know, all these other pressures that my management, my leaders are saying that I need to hit every month in order for me to make bonus, in order for me to do all the other things I'm supposed to do. And so I'm incentivized in a way that seems to be counter to this approach. Do you buy that? And how do you work through that sort of mismatch between the individual wanting to be more relationship-based and maybe a system by which they work that says, meet those numbers, damn it?
1: Yeah. So I've worked in so many sales jobs where the management was thrilled with me. Well, why were they thrilled with me? Well, it's because I had the biggest pipeline. I had the most people, the most appointments, the most, 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 but my closing wasn't great, right? It was good. It wasn't great. So I would spin my wheels. i give an example. I was selling franchises for a while and I would go back and forth to Minnesota and I'd invest 30, 40, 50 hours to close one, one new franchisee. Hmm. So my my managers were thrilled because they saw that this activity and Fretzen doesn't give up, he doesn't take no for an answer and all that. But when you look at the time that was invested going back and forth to Minnesota from Chicago and and all the time I put into this guy who ended up just not doing the franchise and just going back and 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 you know taking his job back. Okay, that happens. But if I had disqualified that person in one meeting because I understood that he was a flight risk or understood that he wasn't really serious about the franchise, how much more time would I then have had to spend with real people? So it isn't just about, you know, closing the business. It's about how efficient you can be in your prospecting activities and in, in, in prospecting done intelligently and with process and with planning, and then to have a process like sales-free selling to understand who's real and who's not. It all works together. It's not isolated. It's all plan and then execution on prospecting. And then, all right, you just worked really hard to get a qualified meeting. How are you going to lock it up so that everybody feels good? So you're really not giving up anything. All you're doing is saving time and and actually bringing in more business.
0: So it sounds like what you're saying is that the results uh, eventually will will show themselves in this particular approach. You know, we don't necessarily have to go back to the old way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I get that. And it makes a lot of sense. So in this world that we're in right now with, you know, covid when we were doing this interview, we were in the middle of january twenty twenty two And still so a lot of things are locked down. And you know, you and I are meeting over a Zoom meeting. Uh, a lot of my clients, I'm sure your clients too, are meeting more virtually. And it doesn't seem like this this virtual world is going to go away. We probably will come back to some sort of a a hybrid, if you will. but um I think people have been proven that there is a certain amount of productivity and efficiency, and cost savings by having conversations with clients and prospects over a virtual environment. So then my question then is, how do we then develop relationships in a medium that doesn't necessarily throw itself into being good at developing relationships?
1: Yeah. I think it has to be done with with more intention than ever before. So if you're looking behind me, you're seeing I have an autographed Michael Jordan jersey. Yeah. and you want to develop a rapport with me, you can bring up that Jordan jersey. But how many people are saying that to me every day, every week, every month? Is that really hitting my mark? If you're trying to get me to you know, buy your financial services or to hire you as my coach or whatever it might be, wouldn't a better approach be to do a little research, use the thing you're in front of anyway, the computer, and look up my LinkedIn? I just wrote a book. It's literally launching this week, okay, called Legal Business Development, isn't rocket science. So you, you know, somebody would notice that or would comment on that. And how did you come up with that? Or that title or that cover? Now you've got me. That's hmm. a starting point. The other reality is that, and I help my clients write what's called a strategic partner and client loyalty plan. And it's a way of you can do this with prospects too. But how are you keeping in touch with people? How are you mm-hmm. adding value for them? How are you making sure that you don't go cold? And so these things need to be more intentional than haphazardly done because we're not meeting at restaurants, because we're not flying and visiting them at their office anymore. We have to step up and look at virtual ways to add value and and just make sure that those relationships you know are, are you know are sticking around.
0: So say more about the strategic partnering client loyalty plan. Give me an example of some of the things that might be a part of that.
1: Yeah. So let's talk just about clients for a minute. One of the biggest challenges that people have is they don't get enough referrals or introductions from clients. That's where a lot Hmm. of the low-hanging fruit comes from, right? Certainly more than cold calling or, or networking. You've got clients that think you're terrific, that have used you, and you're not being proactive with asking for introductions. Well, maybe it's because you don't have a deep enough relationship. So let's work on that. Let's build that deeper relationship. So you can create a list of A's, B's, and C's. I've got A clients, people that spend a lot of money with me, people that I'm very tight with. I've got a great relationship and they know a lot of people. I've got B's, step down from there, and then C's to step down from there. Maybe a C's someone that did some work with me for $1,000 five years ago. Okay. We haven't kept in touch. Well, that's a problem. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to have the A's. They're going to get an email from me every month with some value add. I've got a new book I'm sending your way. I want to introduce you to this person. I'm, making, I'm sending a client your way. Something proactive to add value. They're getting my newsletter. They're getting you know, an introduction to a strategic partner that I think they would value. Whatever the case is, there's five or 10 things on those lists for those A's that they're going to get over a period of a week, a month, a quarter, a year. The B's are going to get a little bit less. Why? Well, Hmm. because the B's aren't the A's, you know, and I don't have to do as much or shouldn't do as much as them because they're not my bread and butter like the A's are. And and then the C's and everybody can get a newsletter. Everybody can be attached on social media. So we're just thinking more proactively about how we're going to touch the A's, B's and C's. And most people aren't doing that. They're just letting the year happen. And then it ends up not being as strong as if there was some intention behind it.
0: Got it. So, Steve, do you have any uh, like example of a person that you really could go back and say, that's an example of when this really works?
1: Yeah, I've got a bunch. And one in particular is a recent lawyer down in Fort Lauderdale, and she opened up her own law firm. And she's a bright lady. There's no doubt she comes from a big firm. But look, she's starting her own practice, and she's doing a subscription model, which means she's got something new that most people aren't doing in mm-hmm. the legal profession yet. Soon they will be, but but she's one of the first that's basically a flat fee to be like to represent labor and employment for a client. It's a flat fee a month. Mm-hmm. And she works for them a certain number of hours. Like a retainer, cetera. almost. A yeah. retainer, a retainer. Yeah. But look, you get five, 10, 20, 30 of those, it adds up. Right. So she hired me because she has no process or plan or anything for business development. And she didn't want to go into this and fail. She wanted to go in this and be successful, so we started working together. We wrote a plan. We both agreed this is the way to get the results. The plan is the is the roadmap for how she's going to get from A to Z. And we watch that, we track that, we measure that, we stay with it the whole time we're together, which is about eight months. She's in a mm-hmm. weekly class with me for ninety minutes with other lawyers from around the country. We're working together one on one. I'm on full retainer. Calls me anytime she needs. And that, in learning all these processes that she never had, she, she would go in and just pitch somebody. Again, here's what I do. Here's why I'm great. Here's my background. Here's what I do. Tell me your problems. Here's what I would say. Here's what you do. She's mm. doing zero of it. Mm. None of it. It's all relationship building, setting an agenda, making sure that the, 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 the prospective client is, is going to be open with her. They tell her all the problems. And at the end of it, she says, what do you want to do next? And they say, well, I want to retain you. And she Mm -hmm. sends them a retainment agreement and she moves on and she's been Mm -hmm. locking up deal after deal after deal. Now she's hiring employees and she's building out a practice. And that's exactly how it should work when someone executes on what I'm teaching, because it is all about planning and process and then performance improvement. How do we take a process, learn it, make mistakes? Yes. But then learn from those mistakes, get better and better and better. And you know, that's coaching, right? That's where the coaching comes in. We can't let somebody take a bad path. And just stay on it. We've got to measure it and figure out what's not working and fix it and help them and get them over the you know to over the hump and to the next level. So that's like an ideal. I don't work with law firms, Dean. I only work with individual lawyers. They've mm-hmm. got to be super highly committed and ambitious and interested in in learning and developing their book of business. that's That's the only way I can work with somebody.
0: Very good. And is there any particular part of what you just said that you think is transferable to other industries? Like it's all transferred. I mean,
1: before I did this for lawyers, I've worked in over fifty industries. I mean, to a mm. carpet cleaner, a Caribbean medical school, uh, financial services, a website company. I mean, I've worked all over the place. So it. But but I've I've because I've been in legal so long, and I've worked with so many attorneys. I've really customized all the language, all the processes and approaches to really work best for them. And that's right. what specialization right. does. I'm not a lawyer, but. You know, when you work with thousands of lawyers and you get results with them, you know it's not too hard to figure out what direction you need to go with each one as they as they as they come come on board.
0: Fantastic. So, Steve, how can people stay in touch with you and, and you know talk about your book a little bit? What's coming up for you in the future? You know, yeah, do so that a bunch. Pitch.
1: <laughs> yeah, a bunch of stuff going on. So, number one, if you're a lawyer and you're interested in learning. Business development, marketing, operations. I have a podcast called Be That Lawyer. It's findable on Apple. It's findable on my website, fretson.com. Check it out. I was telling Dean I'm like 160 episodes in. So you can First go step. back and, like, I'm interested in marketing. Well, then, then listen to you know five or 10 on marketing. If you're interested in networking, listen to a few on networking. You don't have to listen to them all. I've got four books all on Amazon. I've um, been very busy writing books. And the last one is called The Most Recent One, which is out literally this week or in January. 2022. Legal business development isn't rocket science. And guess mm. what? It isn't. Doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that you know, you should know it, but it means that I'm not teaching you how to build a rocket and go up into space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have to get the fundamentals of process and language. That's really what I'm working on with people's mm. process and language. And when you have that down, everything that scares you now about business development becomes very easy and repeatable. And that's really mm. what it's all about. So fretson.com for the podcast, my blog videos, just about anything is there. And I'm I'm busy either coaching lawyers on business development. I also run peer advisory roundtables, Dean, where I take successful lawyers, put them in a round table, like an advisory board, and they work in a confidential non-competitive environment mm. uh, to help each other. And so I've got a five of those up and running. So I'm you know i'm really trying to help lawyers on a number of different levels but they all have one thing in common they all have to want it they all have to want to go after it if somebody's not interested in that read my books or just hang tight
0: <laughs> well again they want to go after it and they want to make a difference and it's i'm going to tie you back to where you started with your aha moment as a result of your your crash you know it sounds like you've got that fire in your belly to make a difference in the world you found a process for which to do it. And I'm sure you're going to continue to find others who want to go along for the ride. And I, I took a look at, I um, listened into on a couple of your podcasts. I think they're great. I think that even people who may not necessarily call themselves a lawyer could find some time, the timeless transferable skills around networking and selling and relationship building, whether you're a lawyer or not.
1: Yeah, it's you know, for sure. I mean, uh, the skills are transferable very much so, but you know, again, if, if there's somebody that I can help through the books, the videos and the podcast, then that I'm thrilled. Like my greatest, you know, legacy is going to be, you know, what I leave behind as it relates to not only content, but the numbers of people that I've helped directly and indirectly. And that's, that's, that's a great place to to go. If you're going to leave this place, leave it better than you found it.
0: Good for you. Thanks, yeah. Steve. It was great to get to know you.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Dean. I appreciate it. And great interview. Thank you for listening to The Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com.